Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. Um, before we go around and introduce ourselves um, and then hear from our speaker, I think for the benefit of um, <coughs> discussion we may have or recording, uh, I just want to set the stage. So today, um, January 12, 2016, uh, in Orlando, Florida, um, a, what we have been told is that a lone gunman entered a very popular gay and lesbian bar just after last call and uh, proceeded over two hours to kill 50 people, the largest mass shooting in U.S. history, um, and wound many others. So that's why you see our altar adorned with 50 multicolored candles. Um, so that's where we are. So um, before we hear from our speaker, our tradition is to go around and introduce ourselves first. Um, my name is Tom. My name is Douglas. I'm Jack. I'm Brian. My name is Jane. My name's Joel. Peter. I'm Jim. I'm Hal. My name is Liz Walden. I'm David. Gary. Joanne. I'm Tom. I'm Richard. I'm Robert. My name is Greg. <coughs> My name is Jay. Silas. Jason. Ben. My name is Ray. My name is Mark. <coughs> Michael. Larry. <coughs> Larry. I'm Shantan. <clears throat> Jeff. My name's David. I'm Clint. My name is Jerry. My name is Michael. I'm Max. And just by a show of hands, is there anyone joining us for the first time or after a long absence? No? Good. All veterans. So uh, I consider us very fortunate today to have our good friend Tom Moon with us. Um, Tom Moon has been a practitioner of Vipassana meditation for 15 years, and his spiritual home is Spirit Rock Meditation Center. He is a psychologist here in San Francisco, working primarily with gay men. His chief commitment is in exploring the interface between Buddhist practice and psychotherapy. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Um, well, I guess what I would like is a little guidance from the group, um, if I may. Um, I did plan a talk to give today, and then like you all, I woke up to what happened in Orlando. So I'm wondering what's the best way to use our time. I can give the talk, I can do it another time, and we can just have a group discussion of what is, is happening for us in reaction to all that. So I guess I would just like some feedback from you all about what, how you would, what would be the most productive way to spend our time together today. I think you should give your talk. I do too. And we can have 
maybe a, a few minutes at the end to uh, express our feelings. Thank you. Other? Yeah. Same. Yes. Well, in the opinion of the chair. <laughs> okay, right. Well, the topic that I, uh, that it, my topic du jour, thing that interests me the most these days, is uh, uh, Samvega and Pasada, two Pali terms, which don't have exact translations into English, but they uh, are terms that apply to two kinds of feelings which are held to be essential to the spiritual path. Samvega being essential to getting you on it, and pasada being what you have to have to sustain yourself through it. Um, and what I'd like to, I'd like to start with Samvega and uh, uh, start with a few quotes, a couple of quotes. Uh, famous ones from Western writers, uh, which exemplify, in my opinion, Samvega. And the first is from Bertrand Russell. It's from an essay he wrote and published in 1912 called The Free Man's Worship. And I first read this, especially this passage, when I was a teenager, and it deeply affected me. And it's one of those things that's been, that, you know, when you read, there are things you read that just stay with you for, through the decades. That This one has stayed with me, and I've wrestled with it and grappled with it uh, since then. So you, And I know a lot of you have heard this already. It's, it's a very famous passage. <clears throat> Here it is. That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. <laughs> right? <clears throat> I want to start on an up note. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm 15 years old in the Belmont Public Library, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, whoa, this is so cool, you know. I mean, destruction and despair, and me. what more could a kid ask for? Um, and I'm reading it, uh, you know, um, I'm reading it in the Belmont Public Library because it, this essay is in a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And if I had taken that book home and my mother had seen it, she would have had one of her spells. So in order to keep her alive, I just read it every day at the library. And it was all the more exciting because I knew the secret truth that adults uh, were too fearful and hypocritical not to face, you know, the utter emptiness and meaningless of existence. So, um, but, you know, even for a teenager, ultimately the bliss of unyielding despair starts to wear off. And I was faithful. 
I was faced with the the reality that you know this kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. um, and then uh, that's where it stood for a while. And then later, when I was in college and I was uh, studying psychology, I came to the realization. Uh, that what Russell was asking for in this essay, it, it, what the task he gives us is manifestly, self-evidently impossible. In, because despair, at least as I've experienced it, is not a firm foundation for anything. It's, it's, a, it's an abyss. It's something you fall into. And we can't, I can't have a philosophy of life which is built on a foundation of despair. People try to do that, you know, I think the existentialists tried to do that after, but that was more, it looks to me like that was more of a post-war mood than a, a philosophy which people can live by, you know, anyway. Um, so, and then later when I began to encounter the Buddha Dharma and looked at this, I suddenly realized that what Russell is dealing with in this passage, of course, is the truth of impermanence, right? He's realizing everything goes, you know, impermanent are all compounded things. And the response, his response is unyielding despair. Um, so this is, writing this essay, in my opinion, is his some vega moment. Um, in the archetypal story of the Buddha, his Samvega moment, as you all know, I'm sure, uh, occurs when he leaves, at age 29, he leaves the palace that he's grown up in and goes outside to see what's out there. And he encounters the four heavenly messengers, they're called, right? The first three are a sick person, an old person, and a corpse. And he goes, ah. You know, and he asks his attendant a really incredibly naive question for someone 29 years old to be asking, I think. Uh, he says, is this going to happen to me? And the attendant says, I'm afraid so, you know, this is how it is. And he's just absolutely horrified. Um, I, I guess this is meant to show how, how uh, uh, protected he had been. And He's just, he's got to do something about this. And so that's the beginning of his spiritual life. That's, that's his Samvega moment. Uh, what is Samvega? So uh, Tanisaru Biku describes it in this way. He says, it's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range. At least three clusters of feelings at once. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that come with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a, a, a way out of the cycle. Right, so that's some vega. And in the, again, this is an archetypal story, so their idea in Buddhism is that this is what you have to look, this is what you have to see, is this impermanence, the thing that there's no secure refuge in this world, there's nothing to hang on to, it's all, it's all sand, you know, between your fingers, you, we can't hold on to anything as a secure refuge. That realization starts the process going of spiritual life. Um, and I'll read another quote. This uh, is also very popular with adolescents. Uh, 
Uh, it's, uh, you've all heard this too, it's Thoreau uh, from the first chapter of Walden. <clears throat> the mass of men lead lives of quiet des desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city, you go into the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotype but unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. So, I don't know, is this true? I mean, you know, his idea is that, uh, you know, we live, the great mass of humanity lives in a kind of quiet desperation which we try to conceal from ourselves and push away with our diversions and amusements. Is that how life is? Is that? All those in, fig, in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Uh, all those opposed? Nay. So I, in the opinion of the chair, <laughs> I don't know. That was sounded kind of 50-50 to me. Right? It's an interesting perspective, kind of a grim one, you know. But I think it, 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 it kind of resonates with the Buddhist perspective that um, we try to deny the truth of impermanence. Again, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. As the er, uh, early Buddhist teachings freely admit, the predicament is that the cycle of birth, aging, and death is meaningless. They don't try to deny this fact, and so don't ask us to be dishonest with ourselves or to close our eyes to reality. As one teacher has put it, the Buddhist recognition of the reality of suffering, so important that suffering is honored as the first noble truth, is a gift in that it confirms our most sensitive and direct experience of things, an experience that many other traditions try to deny. So, um, well, what do you think? I heard uh, two, two, two points of view out there, you know. Uh, what is Thoreau? What do, what do you think? Anyone want to say anything about You don't have to, but... Sir? Well, I, I feel that it's simultaneous, you know. Uh -huh. there's, there's great despair and there's great joy yeah. coexisting in yeah. this moment. Uh-huh. And it's expressed in our society in so many different ways. Yeah, that contradict each other and uh, support each other. I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm feeling very holistic. This <laughs> yeah, it's a little we're on that side. Most of us do. Sir? Well, I mean, I think that if our equanimity is dependent on outside circumstances, good events, bad events, you know, um, then then we will experience, un, you know, unhappiness. But if our equanimity, our state of mind can be, um, if we can be equanimous, regardless of what is happening externally, you know, then perhaps it's not all despair. There's also something about um, uh, this notion that we're all going to go to dust and everything goes to dust. Um, and at the same time, everything humans could ever create is already contained within the universe. Hmm. Um, so there's something about it's just our, our this manifestation of it, like that it's already there. There's something eternal that we manifest. Yeah, yeah, timeless. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Hey, James. Okay. Um, I think it's hard to um, encounter love on a regular basis and a sense of presence 
in our meditation um, and come out with a feeling of nihilism. I, I, I just think what we encounter um, in our inner life is so powerful and so non-egoic that we're clearly part of something so enormous that we can't really speak of it um, definitively. I, I just, I think awe is as, as common as suffering. Yeah. Okay, can, can I go on? To, oh, wait, one more. Yeah, for me, the, the quiet desperation that I've heard people like Gerard and Macy refer to as silent scream. And there's mm. other, there's many references to it, but for me, it's what made me look for more. Yeah, so that was your some vague experience. Yes. Yeah, the silent scream. Okay, um, well, you know, I wanted one comment. The Buddha said that this, this, this the realm of existence is perfect for uh, to, to uh, become enlightened because he, th- he said we're in the middle here. There's, there's suffering and there's also pleasure and joy and we're kind of halfway. So in the, in the God realms, they're too blissful to care. In the hell realms, they're suffering too much to be able to do any practice. But here, it's perfect. Anyway, so I said there were four messengers. So the fourth heavenly messenger that the Buddha comes across is a renunciate sitting in silent, blissful meditation. And I think this symbolizes the idea that there is a way out, of that it isn't nihilism, that that's not the final word about existence, and that there is a path that leads out of suffering. Um, and... Uh, so that gives, our, gives us uh, the second word, pasada, which is somewhere defined in here. Um, it, it's a complex set of feelings usually translated as clarity and serene confidence. And it's the idea that by working a path, we can come to some relationship to the, un, the, the suffering in life in which we are not in, you know, um, unyielding despair. So that the final word is not unyielding despair, but serene confidence. That's the foundation. It's kind of it. Bertrand, when Bertrand Russell was walking around Cambridge, I don't think they had renunciants sitting in the grass, right? <laughs> so he didn't have this idea. They didn't have this idea. Things have changed in London since then, I think. There's a yoga studio every hundred feet now. But, um, so anyway, uh, so that's the, that's the idea, is that there is a path that leads out of suffering and that we can follow it. And, but the interesting thing is that the first noble truth is suffering, that, we, that, that it is not denial of it, it is going right into the center of it. It is facing it that is the, is the, is the way out of it. It's the way out is through it. Um, who is this? Uh, opening, uh, this is uh, Jack Cornfield. Opening ourselves to all aspects of experience is necessary if we want to make a difference. To look at the world honestly, unflinchingly, and directly requires us to also look at ourselves. We discover the sorrow and pain are not just out there, uh, external, but also are within ourselves. We have our own fear, prejudice, hatred, desire, neurosis, and anxiety. It is our own sorrow. In opening to suffering, we discover the great heart of compassion. Um, let's see, where are we? Um, I'm almost out of stuff. <laughs> so, um, the idea is then that there is a path that leads out of suffering. 
and that um, uh, it isn't the final word about existence. And when I see people, I've known, I don't think I've ever met anyone personally who is enlightened, but I've met a lot of high beings in my life, a lot of people who've done a lot of practice. And I do see a, a, a serene confidence and a joy in them, and also an ability to um, face the suffering of the world without um, despair. There's a really interesting story about the Buddha that, I, that uh, a lot of people don't know. Everyone knows, you know, he was raised to be a king, right? He was going to inherit this kingdom. And then he ran away from home and uh, became enlightened instead. But what a lot of people haven't heard is that later in his life, this kingdom that he was supposed to inherit was overrun by invaders and destroyed. And the noble men and noble women of the kingdom were herded into pits by the invaders and trampled to death by elephants. You know, so it was not a more barbarous time than ours, right? Or, uh, yeah. So the news of this was brought to the Buddha, and of course, he's all he was, his whole life was public. He's sitting in a with a crowd of people around him. I guess he's under a tree talking, and somebody comes and gives him this information. Right, and it is said that he received the information in silence and never spoke, which has always intrigued me. What does a person of that level of development feel when he hears something like that? Does he not suffer? Does he suffer? What? I mean, um, I suppose he does not succumb to unyielding despair. But wow, you know, it's just an interesting question to think about. Uh, the same thing happened um, in our century, or or maybe the 20th, anyway, to the Dalai Lama, right? When uh, he was talking and word came to him that the Chinese had, had uh, murdered one of, of, of a favorite teacher of his, a, fav- a famous monk, you know. And what he did was burst into tears and cried and cried, you know, and told everyone why he was crying. And then he said, now we must pray for the Chinese. You know, it makes me want today. It makes me want to cry. Now we must pray for the Chinese. You know, it's a beautiful, a beautiful that 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 what opened, what what came to him was first the grief and then the compassion. That's quite beautiful, I think. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little. Um, so I'm going to stop and, and let's have a conversation. But I want to read one more thing. Um, it, relative to something you said a few minutes ago. Uh, Some of the the Buddhists that I've seen who've really done the practices, really gone through and really taken it seriously, do reach, many of them, a state of of bliss, of ecstasy in this world, you know, and not just in the Buddhist path. I think of uh, Ramakrishna, you know, just, I mean, the man... Was just lived in ecstasy, or uh, Ramana Maharshi, another Hindu saint, who's just, you know, age 16, he gets enlightened, he just lives in a state of enlightenment for the rest of his life. Um, and here's a, here, here are some words from uh, Tong Sam Chol, one of the great Zen masters in the last century, he was called the Living Buddha of Korea. And he was, he was, he lived in a kind of ecstasy all the time, too. And this is what he said. 
Look at the great light. As the brilliant sun rises in the blue sky, endless eternal light pervades the entire universe. Heaven and hell, the noble and the evil, all come from this great light. And there is nothing in the universe which is not this great light. The flying birds, the crawling bugs, the flowing streams, the stoic boulders always speak loudly of this light, and they all reflect the oneness of everything. That is both a noble and an awesome sight. Even that which seems hopelessly pitiful to us is filled with this light, and everything that exists is genuinely happy. I don't know, is he deluded or enlightened? <laughs> A little each. I don't know. But I love, I'm really glad there are people like this in the world. I want to stop there and, and maybe, because so, I think we should talk. I think I'm very full of feeling today, and I think other people are too. So um, those are my thoughts. That's my whole act. What do you guys do? <laughs> that the uh, gate to the spiritual path is flanked by two columns. One is confusion, the other is paradox. Hmm. And um, that seems kind of apt. <laughs> yes. Well, the confusion part sounds like a little bit like some vega to me. The, what, what do I do about this? And the paradox, what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean the like the eternal and the relative truth? Wow. Or the... <laughs> the, well, I've had the experience in grief of an immense satisfaction. I don't know how to describe it, and that, that's paradox. Yes. Yes. I've had that feeling too, even in the midst of just almost unbearable grief, the sense of a deep peace and even a a satisfaction and a love, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I've had that too. I wonder if that's what the Buddha felt when he was, when he got that news. Hmm. Uh, I was talking before we started today with, uh, with my friends. Uh, it brought up the issue of what Rinpoche calls the genuine heart of sadness. Mm. And it seems to, to be a thematic for me of what, what you're saying, Sambhaga and the, the, the other side, the paradox that in the middle of grief uh, there can be contentment or about the fact that I you can or <clears throat> their heart can be broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I heard a phrase once uh, that sometimes when the heart breaks, it breaks open, and that that is that is uh, the potential gift of suffering. It can also harden and close, but that it can also break open. Like what? Well, that's what I think. You know, the Dalai Lama exemplified in that story about crying, you know, and praying for the Chinese. Hmm. I, I've found that following this path and doing this practice has given more spaciousness to my experience of life. 
And in that way, I have experienced sorrow and also joy at the same time. In the same moment. In the same moment. I have a, my sister is, I think she's dying. She's not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to support her and her suffering. And at the same time, I have a, a grandson who's nine months old, and he's nothing but joy. And in the same day, I go from visiting my sister to visiting my grandson, and it's all there in the same experience. And, and, and in that regard, I think that's what happens when the heart breaks and opens. It just becomes so spacious. Yeah. So it sounds to me like what I'm hearing and what you're saying too is that you've learned pasada from your own experience, a, a confidence that it worked, the, the, the practices work, that they yes. do, that they do. There's a reinforcement. It's not just blind faith. It's there, we see. Tangible results. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Um, when I was 12 years old, I found, I decided, I discovered that I was gay one day as I was reading a psychology book. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I was totally heartbroken. Mm. I was, I would, that, to me, that was the first realization that the neat little world that I grew up in as a Mormon boy in Salt Lake City was not going to work out for me. Yeah. And I was, my heart was broken. I started crying. I was hysterically crying for three days. And I looked forward to my future and to my struggles, and I realized that I would have a, a difficult time in my life. And that has proven to be the case. Up until this very morning, I realized that, this, that my life is about struggling to maintain my truth of what I see for myself in the world. And, and it hasn't disappointed me, and I, it was really truly, uh, truly a vision that I had for my life. And, and it was very accurate. Have the, do you do, the, do, you do a meditative practice or the path? Or? In my own way, yeah. Yeah, does it help? Does it? I recognize that uh, my life is a constant balance of, of uh, battling complacency and struggling for truth, yeah. I mean, that's definitely, um, and I have a lot of joy in my life. Oh, good. But there's a lot of, there has been a lot of heartache also. Yeah. Yeah. Mine too. And it's just been the truth of my, my journey through my life. Well, you told her, let me tell mine. I was 14. And in uh, Canoga Park, walking to an English class on a hot day, and looking at three guys walking in front of me and looking at their butts, <laughs> thinking, "Whoa, wow!" And then I thought, "Uh oh!" <laughs> and uh, you know, it was like in an instant. It was for me. It was sudden too. It was like, and I went. I couldn't cry because it was no safe place to cry. And I went and looked at myself in the mirror, and I said, you're one of them. 
you know. I mean, it was just complete, just... So then I went to the library to look myself up in the in the psychiatric textbooks at the time. Big mistake, you know. The, the Dewey, de- the catalog. Remember those? Yeah. This kind of homosexuality. See also perversion, psychopathic deviance. So that that didn't much help, you know. That's why I became a psychotherapist. I thought my only hope was to become a, an expert in mental health. You know, didn't work. <laughs> but anyway, um, but. For me, um, there is there was a moment. Uh, have you had this? There's a moment when I uh, uh, was the first time I, I really let myself love a man, and I was feet, I was making love, and we were looking in each other's eyes, and there was this sudden sense of being rooted in the nature of things. This sort of sense of, uh, and I wrote about I wrote this my own rhapsodic. Thing about it, I said um, in my diet, my journal. I was 24, I think. Uh, the Sufis say that whenever a soul finds itself, finds its way home, that a chorus of angels sings a song in the heavens. Oh my God, it's true. I hear them. You know? I mean, I was just over the top, you know. But the sense of being loved really has, has it doesn't. I mean, the internalized homophobia stuff, that was real, and it has been rough. But that, that balance of, um, you know, the feeling that whenever you really love and are, are loved, that you know on some sense that this is what life is for, you, right? Even if it comes through a form that you're not supposed to have. Um, so it's been mixed. For, it's been that to me, too. There's also been the moments of awakening and coming home in this. You know what I'm talking about? Sir, Oswald? Uh, somebody mentioned earlier the word awe, and uh, as, uh, I, you know, it seems to me a good antidote to despair. Uh, and uh, I have personally experienced in my darkest times the, in the middle of being overwhelmed by the sadness of like, losing a partner or you know, the, things like that. that uh, hmm. Some switch red happens at some point, which is my road to sanity, which is like, wow, I am here to witness all of this and to have witnessed any number of other things. And in connection to those uh, 50 souls that were lost today, you know, uh, here we are 3,000 miles away thinking of them. Uh, right now with uh, 50 candles and how many people around the world are feeling the yeah, same thing yeah. and it's awesome to realize that there's, there's goodness in the world too yes yes yeah you're here to witness and to, this is where i don't go with tanisaru biku i quoted this that he said the ordinary round of existence is completely meaningless so he's a he's a monk right he runs the forest monastery down in san diego but it, uh, I, that doesn't quite sp- speak to me either. I mean, there's a sense that it matters in, in ways that I can't uh, explain. But just like what you said, I'm here. There is, I, it, I am intended to do something. I don't know who intended it or what, it, but it, there, it, it, there is a, an intentionality in this life that I can't uh, explain or understand but can't deny either. You know what I mean? That that and that it matters that we love. And it's a motivator for action. 
in practical action, which is often what's needed in, in to yeah. address the moment. Yeah. And uh, that gives, that's giving me comfort. Yeah. This is helpful for me in a way because, I mean, I don't know how it is for you guys, but oh, the, uh, the, these times seem real grim to me sometimes, this political thing. In, in, I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, can you believe it? It's just absolutely beyond imagining, you know. And uh, so to feel that it matters, that we're going somewhere, and that there, it, you know, like you said, that there is this... There is a lot of cruelty and, and ignorance and delusion in the world, but there is this uh, <coughs> spirit of compassion too, which is quieter often. It's not as dramatic as a mass murder, but it's there. You you linked impermanence to uh, to the quiet desperation. Yes, and I'm wondering about the the not self piece. Uh, and its relationship, because it seems to me that you know that the we glorify in this culture we glorify selfhood, and a lot of suffering comes from the burden of having to be a self. Yes. So um, you know, so there's the personal realm of emotional experience, and then there's the transpersonal realm of feeling more connected to something beyond yourself. And that that's its own refuge in a way. Yes, quite beautiful. Well, uh, that's what I, when I read this essay by Bertrand Russell, uh, I'd never heard of not self, anatta, or any of that stuff. And I guess he never did either, because for him, the idea that we as individuals will not continue to exist eternally, or the human race won't, that's despair. That's the, that's the only answer to it. <clears throat> Um, but in a certain sense, we don't exist now. <laughs> you know that, that to some degree, this 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 individuality we speak of is very relative, right? And this connection that we have is what is more real, right? I, I think uh, that's what all the great realized beings have said. You know, um, you know that that this this uh, self that we we spend so much time trying to aggrandize and protect is a fiction, you know? So it's imper the impermanence in that sense is good news. Is, is that, I mean, is that what? Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to read, uh, you know, there's another, I forgot a part of my talk. You know, when you're on the path, what do you think of this? When, when I'm, what I have found is that um, once I had my Samvega experience and, and life, I began to say, I, I got to do something about this and I got to find a way to respond to suffering so that it doesn't drive me crazy. Um, then you're on the path and it's, it's as if you live in two worlds simultaneously. Do you ever have this experience that we're like spiritual amphibians mm -hmm. that we have? Um, listen to what the Buddha said. Um, I forgot this part when I was talking. Um, he said, um, well, first of all, all things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. The exact opposite of what Bertrand Russell said. To be in harmony with the truth of impermanence brings great happiness. And in the Dhammapada, um, impermanent are all compounded thin. No, not that one. Let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the farther shore of existence with mind wholly liberated. So the farther shore of existence 
is a metaphor, right? But it's like there's a distant land that we're trying to get to and that we belong to, but we're here too, right? There's, so uh, that's that sense of being um, having one foot in the ordinary world and one foot out is, is a common experience that I have. Uh, I wanted to read a, a C.S. Lewis uh, from his Christian perspective, uh, you know, in his Western perspective, talked about this. He said, uh, humans are amphibians, half-spirit, and half animal. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change, for to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation. The repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. My um, spiritual life is exactly like that, uh, even though I'm not a Christian. Um, uh, it's a process of remembering and forgetting, waking up and going back to sleep, getting lost and getting found. And I like to believe it's not this, it's a spiral. You know, I'm moving in some direction to wh which I don't understand but which I seem to be drawn toward. And that, it, that that's part of the process. Is So despair is part of the process. I fall into despair sometimes and then into hope and, and joy. And it, I don't know whether that speaks to other people. we got six more minutes and then we have to stop. I have a question. Sir. Thank you for... I wasn't looking over so with, with all that, I wonder where the Dharma comes in. This probably demands another talk from you, but like, uh, you know, is there a tremendous amount of work when you talk about these enlightened beings that you've met who are on a higher plane? Have they really had to work the path? Well, yeah. All except Ramana Maharshi. Well, Ramana Maharshi did too. Well, yeah, but this is the Dharma. <laughs> We're talking about the Dharma. Um, uh, yeah, I skipped over, there's a, the Eightfold Path. Right, uh, it involves uh, uh, mindfulness practice, development of compassion, and then the various right thing, right speech, right livelihood, right understanding, right uh, fellowship with the wise, sangha, right. And uh, that, that takes a little bit of time, though, right? Like, I mean, I'm just wondering. Yeah, like a few thousand lifetimes. Usually, it's considered a few thousand lifetimes. Okay, if you don't believe that, still, a, uh, many decades. Yeah, right, right. I'm just wondering, you know, it seems like a lot of people get stuck at, at the cruelty and the nihilism after, you know, understanding the first uh, cause of suffering, you know, looking at that. But so I, I just think, yeah, work in the Dharma is it's critical. Well, I think that was my point about Russell, was that I think that in his culture there was no answer to the despair. And unyielding despair is the firm foundation of our, has to be, you know, that's what he came to. And so I read that at 15, and then kind of the rest of my life was how to answer that, because that won't work for me, you know. And the Buddhist answer is pasada, a serene confidence that based on your experience, not on what someone tells you, that by doing these practices, as you were mentioning, they work, you know, that you begin to have a heart that can respond to horrors like what happened, you know, this morning, um, without... Succumbing to despair, you know, um, 
that that becomes possible. It becomes possible to live in this world without running from the horrors, but without being overwhelmed by them either. I have a question, I guess, about uh, if there's a way to contain uh, what happened this morning, and uh, it seems there may be some actual social change that comes from this. This might be the trigger that allows more control, who knows? But that uh, we as gays and lesbians are called upon again and again to be unwilling martyrs in social change and how to hold that without feeling like a victim or yeah. scared. Yeah. How, I don't know yet. Um, don't ask me. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm scared, you know, I mean, and angry, and um, I don't want to be a martyr. None of those people did. They were having, they were out drinking and dancing and cruising and doing what I've done millions of times, you know. And um, I'd love to believe that something, action will come out of this about gun control, but look at, I mean, if Sandy Hook didn't do it, you know, if see. What will move these people, you know? What, when does the general revulsion finally arrive and we say enough, you know? I don't know. Well, if school children doesn't do it, then... Yeah, that's what I meant, yeah. I mean, what could, you know? I don't, I don't understand those people, the people who... But I know what they'll do in Congress, the moments of silence and prayer, and, and let's not politicize this by actually doing, you know, say, suggesting we do anything about it. No, well, they'll say, well, if everybody in there had had guns, they could have... Yeah, more guns, that's the answer. Uh, right, that's what the NRA will say. Yeah. One guy had had a gun. Just to finish my little thought that I started earlier. Last night I was out to dinner with some friends, and these are very old friends of mine for many years, 40 years. And he was talking about the inevitability of a Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, look, we're not talking about this tonight. Yeah. <laughs> and this morning when I, I woke up and on Facebook, all this stuff, I, you know, I have to tell you, I signed up for Hillary Clinton's donation, $100 a month. There is something I can do about yeah, this. Yeah. And that's what I did. And I'm good on for, board good for, for $100 a month for a Hillary Clinton until the end of the campaign. Good for you. Great. And you know what? It made me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't feel so helpless, right? No, you, I, I'm like on board with this struggle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't believe it's going to happen, but I can't deny that it's possible. I mean, I, I think that the odds are very much against it, but... Uh, I got a call. This is be last. I got a. I wrote a column. I write this column for the Bay Times, and I, in I wrote a column on generosity, and I gave as an example of an ungenerous spirit Donald Trump. I thought that would be a fairly uncontroversial thing, and I got a call from a woman, uh, old grandmother. I'd like. To, I'd love your column on generosity, but I'd like to talk to you about something. So I wrote, and she said, it "Was beautiful column. It was wonderful. I moved me, inspired me." But Donald Trump as ungenerous, she said. I don't think so at all. He's a wonderful man. He's going to turn this country around. <laughs> and I, because I don't personally know anybody, personally in my life, anywhere who thinks that. I know there are millions who do. 
I don't I don't know any of them. I'm so protected in this uh, the People's Republic of San Francisco. And I just said I said to her, well, as far as I'm concerned, he's a fascist and he's a narcissistic crazy man. And she said, oh. she'd never heard that. She said, I guess we're going to have to disagree to disagree. I said, yes. I said, I, I, this is just not a conversation I can, I'm capable of having right now. I, I said, I'm sorry. Goodbye. So. What is your professional diagnostic? <laughs> of, of what? Of her? <laughs> of Trump? Yeah. Well, I think. Well, in, in, there's a psychologist in Harvard who uses him in his classes as a ca textbook case of the, of the narcissistic personality disorder. I think that's it. But sometimes I think he's a psychopath. Uh, they have a lot in common. They're kind of hard to distinguish. But I think the narcissism is the is the character. It's that it's that it's life starring me. The whole world revolves around me. Fair and just is whatever I want. Right, I mean that's the whole that's his whole deal, right? And greed, my greed, my because narcissists feel empty, so they typically are greed types, you know, filling my emptiness with adulation, money, et cetera, et cetera, is the purpose of life. Doesn't that sound? I mean, I think that's it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah that's. Oh, and then we got to stop because we got to do announcements. No, we can do announcements. Okay. Uh, Did I, I miss you? Sorry. I suggest that um, there seems to me the underlying uh, principle of force of existence is uh, for human beings is um, a, a total upwelling of joy and simply be yes. that we're here yes. and it's wonderful. Yes. And all the despair and sadness and everything else that we feel in the process of being here, we're still here, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. One comment on that, and then we'll stop. I, I love Hinduism as much as Buddhism, personally. And in Hindu philosophy, the uh, Brahma, the ultimate reality, has three characteristics. Satchit Ananda, right? Being, bees, uh, consciousness, and Ananda is bliss. That the fundamental reality, when all is said and done, is joy, and that we are all made from joy. That's their their the standard theological view in that religion. In fact, all of them, if you look at the all the theistic religions, that the fundamental reality is joy. And I think there, personally, that there's something to that. That's this. That was why I read the this thing from the, the Korean monk. Well, on that note, I feel much better than when I walked in. So I want to thank you <laughs> for making me feel happier. So thank you, Tom. Thank you. <clears throat> Next week, our speaker will be Pamela Weiss. Uh, she has practiced in the Zen and Theravada traditions of Buddhism for over 25 years, including several years of Zen monastic training. She completed teacher training with Jack Cornfield through Spirit Rock, leads a Wednesday evening sitting group at San Francisco Insight, and teaches classes, workshops, and retreats internationally, and she's busy. Uh, Pamela is also an executive coach and the founder of Appropriate Response, a company dedicated to bringing bringing the principles and practices of Buddhism into the workplace. So, um, <clears throat> as for announcements, our, uh, our sangha is sustained by uh, your generosity and giving, and so our host will 
Uh, there is a bowl out there, a Donna bowl, and our host will come around with it. Um, suggested donation is eight to ten dollars, which helps us rent this beautiful hall and pay for all these candles and <laughs> um, everything that we do, including the newsletters. Uh, our host today, there he is. I'm the host today, and if you want to uh, have tea and enjoy the camaraderie of each other and talk from our hearts this morning, that you're invited to do that. And if you have tea, you can put your cups in the sink and I'll take care of those. There are treats out there, and if you have any questions about what's there, you can ask me about it. There is a sign-up sheet if you want to sign up. And you can join with some of us for lunch at the door at 12.30 and go to lunch. And, and there's the dongle, which I guess I'll be carrying around and open up our hearts and contribute to a cause that is going to make your heart feel uh, full of joy, possibly, and uh, you'll walk away here feeling better. It's old. Uh, there are some books out here, Queer Dharma, Volumes 1 and 2, if everybody may have one by now. They're out there. They're free for the taking. Uh, okay. Let's gather in a circle for a dedication of By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.